Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Let's make the case today for why God intended people to get married and stay married. And of course, in being able to do that requires what? Make a wise choice in getting married. But divorce is a result of the fall of man. And I start in the 31st verse of the 5th chapter. Jesus said, it has been said, which is, this is the way he introduces each one of these six antitheses. You've heard it said, but I say to you. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now I will call your attention to that statement as being a very cold matter-of-fact, objective statement. Jesus said, you've heard people all of your life talking to the Jews tell you, if you want to get a divorce, get a certificate. In other words, if you're going to get a divorce, do it right. That's what it adds up to. Jesus said, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And if you have a King James Version or any number of other versions, you may see a wording there that says, makes her an adulteress. That is not the true rendering of this. The NIV actually does a very good job in this translation in expressing that the very act of being divorced, being the victim of a divorce, that woman, does not in and of itself make her an adulteress. It makes her the victim of adultery. I want to share with you a paragraph from Scott McKnight in his commentary on this passage because he says it so well, says it better than I could have, so please listen. Divorce confuses the church today because marriage confuses. And marriage confuses the church today because love confuses. Love is understood through the lens of romance, personal fulfillment, self-expansion, sexual satisfaction, and whatever the lasting impressions are in Hollywood movies, relationship TV specials, novels, books about marriage, love, and relationships. And when somebody says they are getting divorced, we are horrified or we're tongue-tied or we say something as trite as, well, I hope you find someone that makes you happy. Or we say, well, not all marriages work out. We often don't know what to say because we don't know what to think. And we don't know what to think because love and marriage and divorce are confusingly connected. And to that, I give a wholehearted amen. That is a tremendous, wonderful, powerful opening statement for what I have to share today. 
I remind you that what Jesus is doing in these six antitheses is correcting the misgivings of the Jews about various subject matters, and consequently, he is correcting us in our misunderstandings and misgivings of these subject matters as well. We're confused. Many people are confused now on this. And it's because of their confusion and the modern day confusion today that marriage is mocked. It's because of this confusion that divorces are rampant. Lives are shattered. Children are victimized or scarred for life. And the modern-day institution of marriage only faintly resembles what God originally intended it to be for us. Now, our understandings and opinions of divorce and multiple marriages and things like blended families come from what has been offered to us by the entertainment industry and the cultural practices that we're surrounded by. As a matter of fact, I took up out a large portion of my sermon this morning where I kind of took off on a rabbit trail. But just may, let me quickly uh, relate to you that television back in the 1950s and early 60s had a lot of functional families represented in their TV programs. But it began to change. As, as far back as then, in the early 60s, it began to change. And some of the some of the TV programs that even today live on in our memories as some of the great classics, if you begin to look at them, you begin to see that there was a breakdown in the representation of the whole fully functioning family. And you're almost shocked to look at it in retrospect. It's minor, but it began to either reflect what was going on in the nation or it began to have an impact on what was going on in society. One of the two. It might seem trite, it might seem meaningless, but do you realize that most all of the Disney animated features uh, showed no functional families? It was always orphans or something. Where's the family in this thing? Some orphan that's out, some fatherless, motherless child or, or character that, that is out to, to be the hero, but where's the family? And this was, this was something that was firm, established entertainment for our children. Now, you, you can understand stories are told from time to time that may include the adventures of some young person. But when you see consistently the family is missing, you begin to get suspicious about something. I love the old Andy Griffith show. Do you realize on the Andy Griffith show there was only one person that was married and he was a drunk? Where was the family? Everything was, was a broken family, a dysfunctional family, that either divorced or, or, or complete adults and not married yet. And it, it, something was un, very unreal about this supposedly very real program. And then it, then it went on to a lot of things that that became a very uh, interesting format for television. Bonanza. Where's the wives in this? There's no family there. The big valley. You got all these grown men living at home with mom. No families going on. You got, and it became more and more as it drifted away from depicting or even recognizing a functional family into all of this, these, these homes that where's the mom, where's the dad, where's the kids. And when we finally did circle around to where they begin to have families represented in TV, 
They were so dysfunctional, they were embarrassing. The kids knew everything, and the adults, the mom and dad, were total dolts. So you can see what the entertainment industry did concerning these issues. And where did this all start going south? God put Adam and Eve together in the garden. And it really broke down rather quickly after Eve was joined to Adam, created for Adam by God. They, they enjoyed a few precious days in paradise together, during which time they, they didn't have one spat. This was heaven on earth. They were getting along famously. Now, Adam and Eve were charged with the responsibility of multiplying, replenishing the earth, filling the earth. Yet, they did not stay in that perfect garden situation, unfallen state, long enough to have that happen. The first child born was born after the fall. So we are reasonably assuming they didn't spend a thousand years in the garden. They didn't spend a year in the garden. They probably didn't spend a month in the garden. Something happened before they even had a chance to begin to fill the earth that they fell. But in this, in this garden situation, it was, it was a short honeymoon. How perfect it was. Eve was never moody. And Adam was never grouchy. It's a shame they couldn't have extended that for a while, isn't it? Eve was not jealous, and there was no televised sports, so Adam was never missing in action. Eve was created, custom created, to be the perfect helpmate. But when Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit, this relationship took a nosedive. And the very first thing that God told Adam and Eve in their sin, that their relationship was headed for trouble. You're going to be fighting with each other about who's the boss. That's basically what God told them. From now on, you're going to strive with one another. From now on, Adam is going to have to work and sweat and toil like he's never understood in the garden. From now on, as you begin to have children, it's going to be a near-death experience for Eve. All of this stuff happened because they failed. For the first time, they would begin their perpetual squabbling. And I'm convinced that their argument and their, their distress between them goes all the way back to that Garden of Eden when Eve ate the fruit and Adam ate the fruit and they started off their sinful career together by blaming one another. This is all your fault, Eve, for eating the fruit. Eve might have shot back, this is your fault, I told you to get rid of that snake. And that's where the perfect plan of God for the husband, the wife, the man, and the woman to live together in harmony began to take a nosedive. Now, why is divorce such a big deal? In the whole economy of things, why is it such a big deal? We know a number of people in this day and age that don't think it's a big deal. 
it's supposed to be a big deal to us because we trust and believe God's word. We believe the Bible. We believe God's plan for us is, is something more than what this world defines. People marry casually, if at all, in this day and age, and they divorce casually. Marriage today has become an experiment instead of a commitment. People enter into marriage saying, well, let's give it a try. And let's see if it works out. What do you mean, it works out? It doesn't do anything. You work it out. Who enters into this and say, well, let's give it a try and see if I work it out? Because there's personal responsibility we don't like taking, isn't there? Because of how common it has become in our culture, we've almost succeeded in normalizing divorce. This quick, convenient way to fix problems that we don't want to have to deal with. It's the easy way out of hard work. Because how many of you will agree today, marriage is hard work. It is emotionally draining. You have to put everything into it to make it work. You have to be willing to die to make it work. So, why make such a big deal out of divorce? Just make an agreement. Go your separate ways. No hard feelings. Both of you get on with a new life. It just didn't work out. Wrong combination of personalities. Your stars must have been crossed. You discovered you weren't compatible. You had different life goals in mind and all of these things. But according to Scripture, it is a big deal to divorce. First of all, we have to understand what marriage is all about. And that's what this passage challenges us to do, to gain a new perspective on the sanctity of marriage. Unfortunately, people don't go to this passage I just read looking for a biblical perspective on marriage. You know what they go to this passage for? Looking for an excuse for divorce. That's mainly why they use this. But what they should see and what Jesus intended for them to see from this was how important and precious and priceless and sacred marriage is. That's what we should learn from it. Godly marriage is intended to be an earthly expression of the heavenly relationship that exists in the Trinity. Perhaps you have notes in your hand. You might want to take notice of a word on there. Perichoresis. It's a Greek word. Perichoresis. I don't expect you to incorporate this into your vocabulary this week. Go ahead and take a stab at it. Everybody say perichoresis. You are Greek scholars for sure. You do not have to remember the term, but please remember what this means. Remember this concept from this sermon. This is a term used by the early church fathers to describe the perfect, harmonious, indivisible relationship that exists in the Trinity. Father to Son, 
Son to Father, Father to Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit to Father, Son to Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit to Son. It infers a relationship so intimate, so personal, so perfect as to be a relationship of mutual indwelling and interpenetration. And Jesus explained that and described it in John 14 11 when he said, I am in my Father and my Father is in me. That would be a scripture that exemplifies the concept of perichoresis. And that is the relationship that husband and wife are to have when they get married. They're to have that perfect relationship. They are already, as far as God concern, is concerned, embarking on perichoresis when they get married. The problem is... They often make a mess out of perichoresis. And that's what offends God. Even if you're still married, if you can't stand each other, you are not exercising and exemplifying perichoresis. You need to get something fixed because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are not at odds with each other. The Bible said that the man and the woman will marry and the two shall become... One, that would be becoming so united in the relationship that they continue to exemplify that perfect unity that exists in the Trinity. We are the earthly institution that exemplifies the perfection of the Trinity. Yet when we fail, we mock God. We fail in what he expects, expects of us. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the more accurate rendering of that is all have sinned and come short of God's expectations of us. That's what that really means. He expects more of us than we often deliver. So we have failed perichoresis when a married couple quits striving for oneness. Are you listening to me? You're married. Are you striving for oneness or are you glad to live in disunity? Have you resigned yourself to saying, well, he's got his life, I've got my life. He's got his opinion, I've got my opinion. We've got different goals in life, but we're going to stay together for the kids. You've already destroyed your perichoresis. Your job, your duty, your responsibility as a husband and a wife is to mend those things that are dividing you, to overcome those things that are creating disunity, to come together and be as one as much as you possibly humanly can. And even though we are human, and even though we cannot achieve perfection, it is our responsibility for us to keep striving to be one. That's our duty. And you won't have to go many days before you'll have an opportunity to have to do that. Because you'll realize, you know, we're, we're not being one right now. God's not happy. We're not happy. Nobody's happy. Let's get back to where we can be one again. It's all because when you cease to be one, that it causes so much strife and contention in your marriage. Failed perichoresis. I have had to counsel through the years with many married couples who seem to understand basic biblical principles, but they don't understand, they don't grasp how those basic biblical principles apply first and foremost to their marriage. I, I counseled with one woman who 
was married to a man who was not saved. And she was not happy living with him. She didn't even like him. And so we went back to the basic biblical principles. And I, I, I reminded her, I thought the Bible said you were supposed to love your enemies. Well, yeah. You can't even love your husband. What's the excuse? She said, I never thought of it like that. The Bible tells us we're to care deeply, emphatically, radically about the spiritual condition of lost people. We're to be praying for their salvation. And I said, you will pray for the lost people that are out there, but you aren't even praying for your husband to be saved because you don't like him. I never thought of it like that. See, we understand biblical principles. We, don't even, we just don't understand how it begins at home. Paul says we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. So here we are running around the world trying to be reconciled with everybody we're at odds with, except in the home we're not attempting to find reconciliation in our relationship. Shouldn't we be reconciled husband and wife one to another first and foremost? before we think we can ever go out and be reconciled with our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers and even our enemies. It all begins at home. Divorce under the law. Jesus didn't simply quote an Old Testament verse when he said, you've heard it said by them of old time, uh, if you want to get a divorce, get a certificate. Get a certificate. He was not just quoting a verse. He was summarizing the issue from a number of Old Testament passages, just boiling it down to its essence. Because the issue of divorce in the Old Testament was magnificently complicated. But when it was all said and done, what it added up to, as Jesus analyzed their failure in this, is, he said, for, for centuries, you people have believed that if you must get a divorce, get a certificate. If you don't get a certificate, it's no good. have to have a certificate. And he said, in the process, you have missed the whole point. That it's not about, this is not a handbook on how to get a divorce. You've missed God's purpose that he said, don't get a divorce. I don't want you to get a divorce. I want you to try and work things out. I want you to have perichoresis in relationship. So that's where they messed it up. Divorce was not supposed to be a convenient plan B for unhappily married couples. And Moses eventually made an allowance because of the hardness of their hearts. That's in another passage. Permission was granted... But permission gradually in that culture became permissiveness. And there developed less commitment to marriage and more casual divorces. It is the old give them an inch and they'll take a mile. We see that so often in our culture. So in the 19th chapter of Matthew, we find this account of the Pharisees coming to challenge Jesus about his view of divorce as compared to what they believed the law to say. And they tested him by asking him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now you can just see them 
tempting, just testing, just trying to trip him up with this question. They thought they were so clever. Of course, we read it and we realize that they were not clever at all. They were quite foolish. And so they ask him just to see how he responds because there were a couple of rabbis in that day who hotly debated the issue of divorce and one was very liberal on the, on the issue and one was very conservative on the issue and the Pharisees were very well aware of this issue of being debated, being debated constantly. So they're going to bring Jesus in it and, and say, so which side are you on? Can a man get divorced for any and every reason or not so that he would be taking sides, so to speak? And Jesus reminded them of God's original plan, straight out of the creation account, that God created them male and female, and the relationship would require them to place each other above themselves in their relationship and to place both of themselves above their relationship with their parents. And this is where a lot of marriages go south. Because you're my husband, you're my wife, but this is my mom and dad. Well, they'll always be your mom and dad, but when you got married, your husband, your wife took first position. Your parents become second or wherever they are. And if that is not kept intact, you're not biblical, and you will end up with so many marriage problems. Those who have been number one in your life, it's going to be a tremendously difficult effort for you to suddenly realize they have been displaced by that one person, the only person on the face of the earth with which you have perichoresis. You did not have that with your parents. You now have it with your mate, and they become number one. And Jesus said he created man, woman, male, female. They leave their parents. They cling to each other. And he said, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That is God's plan. So the Pharisees returned their volley this, with this challenge when they said, why then? You just knew there was going to be a follow-up challenge, didn't you? You know these people. Why then did Moses allow for a man to divorce by simply obtaining a legal certificate and just sending her away? And that's when Jesus said it was a concession on God's part because of the hardness of your heart, because of this sinfulness, because there are situations that do come up in marriages because of sin and because of failure that are intolerable. And he said because of the hardness of your heart, there had to be some relief for the mess that sinful man created. So he said anyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of adultery except for the cause of adultery which he was now addressing how permissive they had become in their concept of divorce under the judaic religion and their practices because jesus's opening statement when he said you know what the people of old have always said if you want a divorce get a certificate there it is. Because of the permissiveness with regard to divorce, they had gotten to the point where a man could divorce his wife because she burnt the food. A man could run down and get a Moses certificate because she's no longer young and beautiful. 
gravity and years are taking their toll and he doesn't like this anymore so go get a certificate as long as you get the certificate you're okay you see how they had turned this into self-serving permissiveness you see the attitude and the mentality that jesus is addressing when they come to him and say how about it can we get divorced for any reason or not i mean moses gave us a certificate so what's the problem what's the big deal and jesus answer was Then in the beginning, God created them and said, What God joined together, let no man put asunder. And he said, as a a final analysis, the only reason you should be justified in getting a divorce is because of the instance of adultery. Now, we know from Paul's teaching that Jesus' words were not entirely comprehensive. He was addressing in a situation the people who were asking him the question. But Paul expands on that. And we begin to understand but sometimes we, we recognize when somebody has been abandoned. What do you do? They've, they've left you high and dry. What do you do? We understand there are extenuating, extenuating circumstances, but it doesn't have anything to do with burning the chicken. It doesn't have anything to do with falling out of love because you were infatuated by the physical attributes. We're still talking about divorce being a brokenness that interrupted God's perfect plan. And I'm addressing a 21st century culture that has come to think it's no big deal. And I'm trying to bring us back to God's mind on this. It's a very big deal. This is very important to God. We should not minimize this. In the hardness of their hearts... It means that dishonest, untrustworthy men or women were not holding up their end of the bargain in marriage. See, a man basically pledged three things to his wife in that Judaic culture. He said, I will feed you, I will clothe you, and I will bring you into my house. And that was very encompassing. And if the man failed in any of these things, as they did, then the woman could file for divorce. And as the issue continued to evolve, then they could be granted uh, divorce for just cruelty, repulsiveness. And the wording of the Jews that they used, not found in the Bible, but they, they, they continued to expand on the Bible teachings, and they wrote their own side rules. And the rules, that, that the wording that they used is that they could divorce if there was something indecent about him or her. Now, if that was the rule we had, how many of you know that people would interpret that however they wanted to interpret it? It was vague, but it was an excuse. Jesus said, you've heard it said, anyone who wants to divorce his wife simply by giving her a certificate of divorce, making it permissible and legal, you have misunderstood what God's purpose for us is. For you, you people are just focusing on filing the proper paperwork. Because Moses said you could do that. But from Jesus' perspective, from God's perspective, it's what happened to the commitment you made. I've performed a number of marriage ceremonies in the years of my ministry. And I have always told the couple I'm marrying, my intention is to unite you two together Till death do you part. You will say that in your vows. Till death do you part. 
That is not just meaningless wording. Till death do you part. It means this is a lifetime commitment. You will say your commitment is in sickness and in health. For richer, for poorer. It's going to be through all circumstances until people get in there for better, for worse. And they come in to to the counseling office and say, I'm getting a divorce because it's no longer better, it's worse. That, That isn't what you said when you got married. You said you were accepting the responsibility to face the storms of life together, to fight your way through every conflict and every battle that would come against you, to go through the worst storms you could ever go through. You were committing yourselves, contracting together. You two would work it out somehow, some way. And when you end up in the counselor's office saying, I'm getting divorced because it's really bad now. No, you said for better or for worse. It's important. It's a big deal. I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. The failure of the the Jewish community being that they had slackened those parameters so much that they had made a mockery of marriage. And Jesus throws all this frivolous nonsense out and he reinstates marriage as a covenant before God not easily broken. And if there were a case for divorce, it would be based on the betrayal of perichoresis. An earthly institution that has failed. And adultery is the ultimate brokenness of perichoresis. Because when you have married, when you have consummated your marriage and you've become one, you have committed yourself in perichoresis. But when you bring a third party into this, there is no longer perichoresis. We don't have the ability to be one with two different people at the same time. That was not God's design for us. Don't use the argument, well, there's three in the Trinity. That is not going to get you by on threesomes in a marriage. Don't go there. Forget the numbers. They have perfect perichoresis because they're God. We have perichoresis because we have a man and a woman because that's the way God set it up. One man, one woman. You bring a third one into that. Even the Bible says that a man has committed this, this sin when he, when he takes a prostitute. He, he has joined himself to her body those two those two have become one you know what that means because of that illicit affair that they had that union together they had mocked marriage that's what marriage is all about is the perichoresis becoming one with somebody else now you're going out and getting a third person and trying to do the same thing with them but it's it's already taken it can't be done with anybody else perichoresis the jews absolutely actually required divorce in the case of adultery. You know, there might be somebody here today that you were entitled scripturally to a divorce because of adultery in your marriage. And perhaps you took that route. But I'm thinking there might be somebody here, or at least we know of people, 
who were entitled, but they chose not to. Now, the Jews required it. If there was adultery in the marriage, you didn't have a choice. You had to get divorced. Christianity understands that if there's adultery in the marriage, that that is grounds for divorce. But we don't require it. Because once in a while, you have these, these phenomenal people that say, you know what, it hurts, it's broken. Something is wrong here. But I want to see God do a miracle in this relationship. I don't want to take the easy way out. I want to commit myself to restoring this marriage. And there's nothing that honors God any greater than fighting for what God had called good and not giving up under any circumstances. I understand that sometimes you cannot fight that battle. I understand. That's the reason I started with my opening comments, because I didn't want anybody to check out on me while I'm trying to preach. But I am very impressed with those who were able to fight that and were able to bring restoration to a broken marriage. Marriages are always made stronger with every battle you fight and win together. Marriages are always made stronger because you've weathered the worst of the storms together. If you want a strong marriage, fight for it. It doesn't come easy. But I promise you it is attainable. If both of you are committed. But it's not yours if you don't have the right Bible tools. If you don't understand forgiveness, like I said a while ago, we understand these biblical concepts. We just don't incorporate them into our marriage very much. We'll forgive total strangers if we find it hard to forgive our spouse if they have failed us. But if we incorporate forgiveness, understanding, love, you can fight those battles and fight for the life of your marriage. If you understand the principle of being true to your commitments... You can fight those battles. If you understand the value of honor and respect, you can win those battles. But the more difficult point in this passage is the next one. Causes her to become an adulteress. Now, the first thing you have to understand, there's only two things that causes a person to be an adulterer. And that is actually committing the act of adultery or, in your heart, playing out that as though you would if you could. Those two things, Jesus very definitely said, makes you an adulterer. Being the victim of a divorce does not make you an adulterer. It makes you the victim of adultery. Divorce is not like a tonsillectomy. It's not where this diseased part is removed and the patient recovers. Divorce is more like setting a house on fire just to get rid of mice. Divorce is destructive. It's, it causes many casualties. It affects so many people. It affects you for your life. It affects your spouse for his life, her life. It affects your children. It affects your family. I grew up in a Christian home. I have Two sisters and one brother, all three, divorced and remarried. My wife grew up in a minister's home, a sister and a brother, 
both divorced and remarried multiple times. We alone in both of our families have held our marriage together. And we haven't held our marriage together because I've been easy to live with. We have held our marriage together because we fought for what we truly believed in. We made a pact years and years and years ago that divorce was not a part of our vocabulary when we were angry with each other. Now we could discuss the subject as a theological thing, but when we were angry, we never would mention the word divorce. Can I give you a piece of advice, people? That should never come up when you're angry with your husband, your wife. That is a challenge that you should never issue because pride gets in the way. And when you're so angry at each other, you cannot remember being this angry. And finally, one of them says, well, do you just want to get a divorce? Don't expect the other one to suddenly mellow out and back off and say, no, 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 I don't want a divorce. I want to, because that's surrender. And when you two have your guard up and you're fighting to be the big honcho, you don't surrender at that point. And so the other one's, well, fine, if that's what you want. And the other one says, well, if that's what you want, because nobody takes responsibility. And then they are sitting there going through the paperwork of filing their divorce, and neither one of them wants this. They're blaming it on, well, the other one wants it. No, you're the one that wants it. And they find themselves getting divorced, and nobody wants this. Sometimes. Let's make the application and close this out today. How does this affect all of us? We have to remember that the discussion of divorce must take place in the context of real people. Real people here today. You, you've been impacted. Some of you have been impacted by it. I know you have. Your lives have been topsy-turvy because of previous marriage entanglements. We, we have this conversation in the context of people who are hurting in their lives because of what they've been through. I understand that. They're looking for answers. If you've got visitors here today, you didn't come here to hear some preacher tell you how wrong you are for having been a victim of divorce. You didn't come to hear that. But you want you don't know, here's the truth. We have to have this conversation with compassion for all of sin that comes short of the glory of God. There are more real-life situations here today represented in the lives of these people and in the families represented here today than we can possibly give proper time to discuss. There's people that have been divorced be before they became Christians. There's people who are victims of divorce even after they were Christians. There's people whose mate left them, divorcing them against their wishes or their efforts. There's people here who were responsible for the divorce, but they, they realize today they made a bad decision and they've got to get on with life. We understand that. Even as self-proclaimed Christians, they got divorced only to re realize later the error of their ways. 
There are people who have divorced and vowed never to marry another. And they've lived on like that because that's what they believe they need to do, holding steadfastly to the hope and the promise that one day their marriage would be restored. Others who chose to remarry, hoping and believing that a divorce was biblically permissible. And still others who have probably made a mess out of their lives through divorce and remarriage. And they have never attempted to reconcile their decisions with God's law in this matter. And others who have found peace in God, saying, God, I've failed. But I need you to pick up the pieces and help me get my life back together. So you've got all kinds of scenarios here. What I'm trying to preach against is premeditated sin. From this day forward, I don't care what's been in your life, what has happened to you, if you're the victim, if you're the perpetrator, what I'm trying to teach you here today is we are responsible for our premeditated sins. So I don't want anybody to have an excuse to say, well, I know people who are Christians who got a divorce and got remarried and they got on with their life and they're okay, therefore I'm going to do that. Premeditated is not going to get it. I had a young man come into my office, visited me several days for several weeks. Sometimes come in once a week, sometimes twice, two or three times a week. He argued incessantly for why he should be allowed to divorce his wife. The only reason he wanted to divorce his wife, they just weren't in love anymore. And after he had come in, after a few weeks of coming in and visiting me, and, and I'm just talking till I'm blue in the face, and he's got every excuse in the world. Look, my mom's a good Christian, and she says that I'm entitled to do this. I've talked to friends, and they're good Christians, and they say I'm entitled. To I don't care what your mom says. I don't care what your friends say. What's God say? And he'd go look home. He'd go home and look up a scripture I'd given him, and he'd come back with an argument for that scripture. And finally, when he came in not... To find out if it was biblical, uh, biblically allowable or not. He came in to see if he could convince me so he could clear his conscience. And I wasn't getting anywhere. And I finally, at that point, got up and I said, I want you to leave my office. And I want you to never come back in here and talk to me about this again. I physically took him by the shoulder and led him through the door. Put him out the door. Shut the door. I said, do not come back. You are not listening. You are bound and determined to get your divorce no matter what the Bible says, no matter what I say. I have no time for you. He never came back. He got the message. He got his divorce. I was not going to let him waste my time trying to convince me that I needed to approve of his actions. The second thing we need to be understand about this is marriage and divorce and remarriage decisions should never be made without biblical or spiritual counsel and i'm not going to get very far with this i'm going to say it anyway because i believe it to be absolutely true but whether you get married or whether you get divorced or whether you are remarrying simply because your previous spouse has passed you should never make those decisions on your own without seeking biblical or spiritual counsel. You know why? Because when your brain is in that mode, you don't always see things except the way you want to see them. You should seek out somebody that can give you good spiritual advice while you're in that state of mind. It's because people don't like to speak, uh, seek spiritual counsel. The young people come to me with their hearts set on getting married. They already got engaged. They've already talked about it. They've already made their plans. And the last stop is to come to some spiritual man and say, we have made the decision to get married. Will you be a part of it? 
You got this all backward. Who did you get your spiritual counsel from when you were making this decision? Who did you go to and say, this is what I'm thinking about. What do you think? Am I thinking straight? Does this look, this look good? No, they've already decided they're in love. They've already made their decisions. They've already got it set in stone. They've got a date set. They've announced to everybody. Now they just want me to be a part of decisions that may have, may, maybe have not been made in light of good spiritual biblical counsel. Understand, before any couple decides to get married here in this church, remember, it is not automatic that I will officiate your wedding. Please understand that. I've had some come to me thinking just because they attended this church, I ought to, as the pastor, be glad to marry them, knowing full well, I, knowing full well, that they had not thought this through. They are not making a good decision. This is not wise. And they are not listening to counsel. Why do I want to be a part of that? I want to know that this is a good decision. Because if I'm going to get up and go through this till death, do you part? I don't want you playing games with me. about. We don't care about the details. We just want to get married and everything's going to be all right. Head in the clouds. I don't have to marry you. I don't want to marry you unless you can demonstrate to me that this has been a good, spiritual, biblically-based decision to do this. Oh, i got so many young girls dragging something off the street into my office and declaring, we're in love, we're going to get married, and we want you to do it. I'm not going to be used as a wedding prop for ambitious young people who think they know it all and they're bound and determined to do whatever they want to do without spiritual counsel, then a few months later their marriages are falling apart. I don't like to marry people outside of this church. This is not a drive-by marriage institution. Just pop in and get married and go down the road. That's not who we are. You've got to go through counseling. You have to prove yourselves that you have taken God into consideration. And please, people, don't come in here and expect me to perform a wedding for your daughter or your son or your grandchild or your niece or your nephew just because you attend here and you think it'd be a nice thing for me to do it because I don't know where they are spiritually. Don't put me in that position. If they do not claim to be Christians, they have not entered into their engagement with God's plan for their lives first and foremost in their minds. Why do you want me to do that? God hates divorce. And I don't want to be a part of casual, careless marriages that have no chance for survival. Second, very few people seek godly wisdom and counsel when they're contemplating divorce because they want divorce. They don't want counsel. They want to make it their own decision. I have very few people who come in and say, do I have biblical grounds for divorce? They come in and say, I'm getting divorced, Pastor. Just think you ought to know. Well, thank you. Made my day. Third, seek biblical counsel in the issue of marriage and remarriage. Much to my own dismay. My own father, my my mother died in 2001. And uh, my father died in 2005. But after mom was gone, I've never seen anybody so lost and so alone dad was very self-sufficient all his life he could do anything he needed to do cook his own meals do everything but when mom was gone you would have thought you cut both of his arms off 
he went completely helpless. He missed mom so much. He was depressed, living in total depression. Until finally he found a, a lady at his church that she had lost her husband years ago. And uh, this had to be just like about three years, two or three years after mom was gone. Dad was looking for a replacement for mom. He was going to make this lady mom's replacement. She, she didn't have the same idea. So I get a phone call. And he said, I, I want you to talk to this lady and uh, get to know her. We're getting married. Boom. I said, Dad, you have to understand I'm a minister. I don't marry. And he wasn't asking me to marry them. He said, I, don't, I said, I don't marry people who have not demonstrated that they've put a lot of serious thought into this and gone through extensive counseling to discover what their life together is going to be. I don't do that. And his response to me was, between the two of them, they had had over 80 years of marriage experience. They didn't need advice from anybody. This is my own father. You're laughing. Do you find that just as absurd as I do? I said, you've had 80 years of experience being married to somebody else, not each other. You don't have a clue what it means to be married to each other. They got married. It was the most miserable time of his life until the day he died in 2005. Because it wasn't mom. He didn't have enough time left in life to train her to be mom. Not that I expected him to, but he did. She was totally, totally opposite of mom. Get some counsel, people. You're talking some serious stuff here. Just ask somebody that can give you some spiritual counsel. There was a middle-aged lady in my previous church that she was a, a multi-divorcee, gone through about four marriages, and she was leading the singles group. I inherited that mess. Well, I guess if anybody knew about being single, she did. One day she picked out one of the young men in the singles group, and they decided to get married. There's no, no counsel. And she had gone to the pastor that was the counseling pastor, Christian counseling pastor on staff in our church, and asked him. And he came to staff meeting one day and said, well, he said, I'm performing the wedding. I said, you're what? He said, I'm performing the wedding. Why are you doing that? He said, well, I prayed about it, and I felt like God told me yes. I said, this is going to be the fifth time for this woman. In what universe did God tell you yes? He just kind of sat there sheepishly. I said, we're going to write a policy right now. We sit down and wrote a policy. Nobody. We'll be married, a divorcee, for a second time in this church without the consent and approval by a, by a staff pastor, without the consent and the approval of the entire pastoral staff. Now, see what this did? This gave us a chance to sit down and talk about this. What's the circumstances? Let's hear this. Is this reasonable? You just can't go over here as a staff pastor and make a decision like this and bring that kind of, of uh, reproach on the pastoral staff. And when we got done, he said, I'm so glad you created that. He said, that'll be useful. I didn't know what to do. Well, you did the wrong thing. 
So they went ahead and they had their, their marriage ceremony. Went to another church because she did not dare have it in my church because she knew me. And they, they put on the biggest wedding ceremony. They decorated. They had uh, all kinds of stuff flowing down from the ceiling. It rivaled any first-time wedding I've ever seen in my life. And this woman on her fifth time coming down the aisle in white, just beaming like this first time. Sick to my stomach to watch this pretentious show. A year later, they were divorced because she's good at that. Had another young lady came and asked me to marry them. She had made up her mind without any counsel, without any advice. She had found some, some young guy that, uh, in my church, some young man in my church, and they were going to get married. And I said, I don't agree to this. Not at all. I will not marry you. Now, if you want to come in and talk about this, then we'll, we'll get into this a little further. But right on the surface, you just, and it made her mad. And she took that man out of my church. They went to Fresno, got married. Six months later, they were divorced. Can you understand, people, why spiritual counsel is important to me? I see things that sometimes other people cannot see. Because of my experience. Because of my calling. And the final matter we need to consider. Church, be committed to promoting marriage between one man and one woman till death do you part as God's ideal for the institution. And I'm calling for you people who have even been impacted by divorced or divorced. Be a part of the message. No matter where you've been, you can say, I've been there, done that. I do not recommend it. Fight with everything within you for God's original plan. You can be a help. You can be a minister in that. You can use the hurts and the pains in your life to minister to somebody else to help them to avoid the hurts and pains in your life. Use that as a positive. Don't let the failures in your life be a condemnation. Let them be a ministry. They can say, you know what? I had to do it the hard way. But I'm telling you there's a better way. There's God's way. I'm a living testimony. God's way is the right way. Do that. Let's promote the sanctity of marriage. Every time we talk about divorce, we remind ourselves it's not God's will. And we have to make doing God's will our highest priority. Because isn't that the repeated message of the Sermon on the Mount? Righteousness? And isn't righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount doing God's will? Isn't that what we learned? See, I laid the whole foundation for this. Isn't righteousness doing God's will according to Jesus? That wasn't Paul's definition of righteousness, but it's the way Jesus used the word. And isn't doing God's will your highest priority or is doing your will your highest priority? Bow your heads.